Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are my co-hosts Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Also with us today are two special guests. Dr Richard Barbrook is a senior lecturer at the University of Westminster and has written extensively about technology, media and politics, including co-authoring the essay The Californian Ideology with Andy Cameron, which is the subject of today's podcast. Hi Richard, thanks for joining us. Hello. Also with us today is Dr. Alex Safe Cummings, a historian of law, technology, and American politics, and associate professor of history at Georgia State University. Her latest book, Brain Magnet, Research Triangle Park, and the Idea of the Idea Economy, came out in April this year. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Richard, can you start us off by introducing the Californian ideology to our audience? We have to go way back in time to a history of the future. Uh, okay. <laughs> so we, I was working at the University of Westminster along with Andy Cameron and this was like just when the internet was escaping from the sort of natural science laboratories and the ho- very hardcore hobbyist community into the general public. And uh, Andy was running a module on making CD-ROMs, you know, there's a, a past technology. And so we decided that we'd set up an MA in what we call hypermedia studies. Uh, so di- what we call digital media now. We just like the name hypermedia. So we thought it was <laughs> very seeing bureaucrats say it, it was always quite funny. And so we, we did that. And so we thought we should write something as a sort of manifesto for it. Um, you have to remember at the time, uh, it was it was the internet was seen as Silicon Valley essentially, and Wired magazine was its bible. I mean now you know Wired is a, just another magazine, but then it was a really iconic thing. Particularly in Europe, people were were you know waiting for the latest editions and you know reading the adverts as much as the actual articles. And we thought it'd be interesting just to write an article about Wired and particularly the reaction people had. So you have lots of people in England. It was sort of, you know, sort of left, left, slightly, you know, socialist, liberal, that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, they, so they wouldn't want to privatise the National Health Service or the railways or something like that. But as soon as it came to anything to do with the Internet, they started spouting all this neoliberal bollocks. And so we thought this was very interesting. So we wrote an article essentially critiquing this and explaining how it doesn't even make sense in California. I mean, I, in 1981, I spent a summer researching my PhD in the Bay Area and, you know, and met quite a few people there. So I sort of knew a bit about the politics of it. And it just seems such a contradiction, particularly between the wire trying to pretend that it was inheriting the new left, the hippie generation, while spouting all this sort of neoliberal stuff, because that was the complete opposite to the old new lefters I met there, the 68ers. Um, so we just thought it would be an interesting thing to write. And essentially we wrote it for ourselves, um, but then it got picked up by this mailing list called Net Time, which is sort of continental, yeah, basically European, quite a few Americans involved, but it was mainly continentals, <coughs> set up by a Dutch guy, uh, a German. Uh, it's here at Lovink and Pitt Schultz. Uh, so 
it, they picked it up and it became sort of like a manifesto for them as well. Uh, Mute magazine had published in England. They picked it, it went around the main. Um, and then, of course, we found to our horror that it was seen as an anti-American screen, which it is not at all, actually. It's sort of defending the American new left against this, you know, recuperation. That's this old situation, as we call, of this culture for corporate capitalism. And... At the time, people like Bruce Sterling, I, I remember on the well, he had this, uh, this, this uh, little forum where someone showed me, and it was called Loony Lefties Sniping at Wyatt, and that was us. We were the loony left. Yeah. Uh, but of course, and it was really dissed, and, and I'm trying to think what his name, the, the, what, the guy who was the editor, his name completely forgot, I forget it was, no. Uh, he actually was horrified by it. Uh, they, and so they really reacted very strongly against it. Uh, and uh, Louis Rosetta, that's right, Louis Rosetta. Uh, particularly interestingly, the thing where we pointed out that their, their enthusiasm for Jeffersonian democracy was rather ironic, or it was probably quite appropriate given that Jefferson was a slave owner. Uh, now that wouldn't be seen controversial in 2020, but in 1995 it was. Uh, uh, so. They, they got horrified by it. But of course, the interesting thing is like on the 20th anniversary, I was actually invited to California to give like celebratory lectures on it. And I kept meet, meeting these undergrads who were going, great, I, wrote, I, I, I you quoted you in my you know, dissertation and all this sort of thing. So now in retrospect, of course, in California, uh, it's seen as a good thing because it's sort of, you know, it's Europeans writing about their own state. So having been insulted in 1995, now it's sort of hallowed article because it's about their own state. So people don't mind criticisms as long as they're far enough in the past. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so the basic point was, you know, it's, is that the, the internet wasn't neoliberal. It was set up by the state. Um, and then it was hobbyist and the corporations only came in there last. But that was the real point behind it. Uh, and we compared it to something like Minitel. Which, you, which was the French equivalent. I mean, that was the first packet switching network open to general public in the world. And they're not that different, you know. They're both state uh, projects. And that was just, and so we're just curious between the sort of difference between the, so it's an ideology in that classic sort of Lenin-Lukash sense of a false consciousness of reality. So they were claiming it was a free market and Jeffersonian democracy and homesteading on the electronic frontier. But it was big government and big business right from the beginning. And really? managed to deter it a bit along the way. And some of the, you know, community activists did. But, you know. okay, sorry. Richard, what do you think the idea of the sort of Jeffersonian democracy or, or space... Um, sort of an internet space where, where people could have this Jeffersonian democracy. Where do you think the original idea comes from, this, this idea of a sort of global village on the net? Is it, is it, is, does it have origins with um, people like Marshall McLuhan, or is it, is it yeah, have a different origin? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, the global village, I mean, that's a completely different story, actually. Uh, so, yeah, McCle you know, in the first edition of Wired, it said, uh, it, and I think quite, well, it might even be saying, right, and, uh, you know, they have all the contributors, you know, all the article and the production staff and the designers. And right at the bottom, it said, patron saint Marshall McLuhan. Uh, and I remember, like, a few years, so this is like, so we wrote this in the mid-1990s, so a few years earlier, uh, 
I had been doing some teaching at another university in London, and I'd done this uh, lecture on Marshall McLuhan to them. And then the students turned around to me and said, there is no Marshall McLuhan in the library. And, I, and this was sort of pre when you could go on the internet and just get it, pull it down. And I was stunned because they were being taught like all this postmodernist nonsense, you know, Baudry. <laughs> well, Baudry was quite good, but you know, all the rest of it, which is completely <laughs> you know, Leotard, Baudrillard, Deleuze, Guattari. It's all, you know, it's all built on McLuhanism, basically. And yet they wouldn't wouldn't put him in because he wasn't seen as somehow academically respectable, even though they were completely appropriating his thought. So I was quite interested that they'd actually publicly acknowledged that McLuhan was where he came from. So McLuhan is a, a media technological determinist. He says that, you know, we lived in this basically oral culture. I mean, he's a, I have to say he's a Catholic convert. So that's sort of the Catholic church, stained glass windows, smells and bells, all the rest of it. And then, then printing comes along, which for him is, is essentially modernity, capitalism, because he says printing is a ditto technology. Uh, and then that creates, you know, industrialism, individualism, nationalism. And then in the 1960s, 50s, 60s, with television uh, uh, is creating an audiovisual culture, and that's going to create the global boom. And he'd gone in 1964 to his American Cybernetic Society conference, where John F. Ford, who was working at Georgetown University, CIA uh, assets, um, tells them about what the Soviet Union is doing, because the Soviet Union were building cybernetic communism. And they said, you know, we've had the, the bomber gap, the missile gap, now we've got the cybernetics gap. America has to not have, you know, must invent the internet first. Uh, so they pour all this money into ARPA and all the rest of it. But they needed a theory because they didn't have Marxism. They couldn't use even the sort of, you know, Stalinoid version of Marxism. So McLuhan provides a theory for the American empire, which is media technological determinism, and that the internet will create a new civilization. And that's prediction they picked up again. I mean, it kept being recycled, you know, you get you know, technotronic society with Brzezinski and the third wave with the Toplers, you know, the information society, the network. So it comes around every few years. Now, you know, it was Web point two, 2.0 a few years ago. Um, you know, God knows what it is this year. <laughs> every few, you could probably make a fortune by just thinking of a new name for McLuhan's prophecy and just recycling it with the latest theory. Basically. I think it's uh, I think it's fair to say that um, in addition to McLuhan, um, there's some other influences on uh, the development of this um, sort of um, dystopian slash utopian uh, vision that the Silicon Valley people put forward. Um, you know, there's a wonderful book by Fred Turner called "From Counterculture to Cyberculture," um, which is based on the Californian ideology. Yeah, um, and you know. He very, that's very good. You see, the thing about that, Alex, is that we were very general, and he's he he honed in on the on the the whole Earth catalogue people. That's the key thing I think about that. He points yeah. out that there never really were left, which is you know, I, it's a really I agree. It's a brilliant book. It's totally yeah. brilliant. Um, so you see somebody like Stuart Brand, who is a real sort of. Uh, enterprising person and he is able to sort of knit together these um, sort of uh, psychonauts who are you know, exploring the mind of DMT and LSD and people who are getting into sort of the very early forms of home computing 
Um, and it all is in this sort of like a really interesting estuary in San Francisco where it, it has the veneer of being left-ish, but it really, you know, becomes a vehicle for uh, raw capitalism, as Richard has um, sort of um, has explained. But I would also add that um, I think it's really crucial to think of the moment when this sort of that, that Turner is talking about uh, the late 60s. There's this very when you go back to this Jeffersonian question that you asked um, there is, the Jeffersonian vision was that there's this huge, vast, unlimited amount of land where everybody can have their own little parcel. Every white man can have his own little domain and you know, not be dependent on other people, have their own little piece of, of heaven. And, you know, California was sort of the end of the frontier. Um, and when we were going into space in the 60s, that was the final frontier, right? Um, but then cyberspace became another final frontier where there's an, a, a utopian vision um, that Americans just love, that like everybody can have their own little homestead. And I think that's really um, a big part of this uh, cultural mythology that uh, Silicon Valley has kind of built up. But it has you know deep roots in American culture. So also, oh, wow. I mean, it's also but the thing is about Jefferson is it was a link, you know, there was an alliance between the slave owners of Virginia and the settlers on the frontier. And that's what got broken in, in the sort of 1840s and 1850s over whether or not slavery should be introduced into these new territories. Uh, you know, John Brown, one of the greatest ever Americans, you should be putting statues up of him. Um, yes. uh, as he correctly said, slavery will only end when white men will kill other white men to get rid of it. Um, uh, <laughs> so, um, I think so. I think that that's the interesting thing to pick on the Jeffersonian. So why do they pick on Jeffersonian democracy and not say free soil people? You know why aren't they picking up on the whole you know, abolitionist movement? The, the you know the you know, someone who's as someone who's living at Atlanta, you know when you know Sherman arrives in Atlanta to liberate the South uh, from slavery. And that's that's what they completely miss out. They miss out this key American revolution. You know, the Second American Revolution, as Charles Beard correctly called it, um, which is which is the Union Army liberating the South from slave owners. Um, and then, of course, that's what they don't pick up. They pick up on Jefferson. And so Jefferson, you know, if you, I mean, I remember going as a kid to Mount Vernon and we were shown around the so-called servants' quarters. It was only many years later I realised what they actually were. <laughs> and so his idea of homesteading is based on having 200 people as your private property who you can molest 14-year-olds and have children with them and <laughs> with them to make them work harder and sell children away from their parents. So, you'd have, so you know, one hand, and that's for me is the interesting thing, is he's not like, because I know there's a lot of thing about pulling his statues down at the moment in America. But it's interesting about Jefferson, because on the one hand, he is a great revolutionary. There's no way you can deny this. I mean, he was incredibly important in European history, let alone American history. Uh, and, you know, he wrote the Declaration of Independence, you know, the Bill of Rights, which, you know, he took, they took, you know, what was going on in France in the revolution, obviously in the 1688 English Bill of Rights as well. And, made, and so all that can go to him. But he was also a slaver. And it's the fact that he was both. You know, he's not a, you know, he's, a, he's what what's, um, Machiavelli says, the founder of a new republic has to be, you know, is the prince who's a centaur, half man, half beast. And I think, you know, Jefferson is one of those characters. So on one hand, he's very admirable, on the other hand, he's quite detestable. And I think that 
that's interesting that they picked on Jefferson, but they didn't see the irony. Now, when he said to them, Jeffersonian democracy, ironically, might be quite a good description of California, because California wasn't just the place of Silicon Valley, the military industrial complex, all this. It's also where the Black Panthers came from. It's where the Watts riots happened. It's where the Latinos organizing the farm workers came from. You know, Chavez, all those people. And so that's that other side of it, which they completely missed. You know, it's a, you know, the only people in Silicon Valley who are not white are Asian. There aren't any African Americans or Latin Americans in it. It's a completely lily white culture. Um, and that's, I found, I mean, okay, I went there in the early 1980s. It might have changed a bit since then. But that was really noticeable to me that it was what my encounter with it. It, it was completely white. Um, I, I think that I'd just like to add that um, I think that Jefferson is a very apt uh, figure for uh, the Silicon Valley cyber experience to uh, focus on because he is a mess of contradictions and he is a giant hypocrite. I mean, Jefferson could do these um, rhapsodic, gauzy sort of uh, reveries of freedom and this vision that he offered. And, uh, you know, like you say, it was based on <laughs> brutal labor exploitation, too. But, like, that, that seems like a pretty good analog for Silicon Valley. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, that's the bit that Louis Rossetto got really furious about because they didn't want to see, you know, irony, dialectics. That's not what it's about. It's about salesmanship. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's what we said. We said, you know, free, freedom for white folks is slavery for black people. And that seems to be, that's the basic of American history. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, he writes it today. I mean, that's, you know, Reconstruction failed despite Grant's great efforts. You know, that's why they revile Ulysses S. Grant, because he was the last president to try and make Reconstruction work. And really, America needs a second Reconstruction now. Uh, that's that, and that was interesting. In the mid nineteen nineties, you couldn't really talk about that. You, that 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 side of America was sort of forbidden, really, to be talked about. Uh, you know, you have slave owners on your currency. I mean, that's the most sort having Andrew Jackson on the twenty dollar bill. That's always quite shocking for Europeans. Yes, <laughs> you know, but that's uh, you know, so it's that strange history of of America where it won't. It wants to write a history of goodies and baddies, not as nuanced and dialectical and contradictory, which is actually what history is. Wait, wait. So, Richard, uh, well, because, I mean, we have this sort of Jeffersonian democracy idea, which is attached to um, the, the Silicon Valley people and the California people. But what I would like to know... Is there a problem with my mic? Or? No, it's fine, Toby. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, what I would like to know is that, you know, the, 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 the new left, um, and this is a group that I think we've touched on, that they, in many ways, were uh, galvanized and radicalized by the civil rights movement. They saw African-Americans putting their bodies on the line, people in the uh, SDS, uh, people in the Weather Underground, people who had seen African-Americans in the civil rights movement, give, put their body on the line, being authentic, fighting for freedom, and had been inspired by these people, genuinely inspired by these people, and wanted to create a society where, you know, everyone had a piece of America, everyone was free, and were 
inspired to create a society where people were living authentically, living as themselves, not being held down by the strictures of fifty uh, society with the racism and the the, the and monotonous work. The and you know and and I think if you have. Also, not being sent to invade Vietnam. Let's not. Forget. Yeah, and they're not to not to invade Vietnam, not to bomb Cap Cambodia, all of these crimes that they reviled and and, and pushed against. So that that is part of the the legacy of the new left, which is you know in some ways had been inspired by the hippie movement. It was part of the hippie movement. It was but was apart from the hippie movement. How does the new left become in sort of attached to? A Jeffersonian idea of freedom, and attached to the the ideas of um, Marshall McLuhan, and the 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 ideas that come to birth the 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 um, internet age, or or is it a sense that the people who, like Stuart Brand, for example, the people who would go on to start consultancies, were they just taking from some parts of the New Left, or, or were the actual members of the New Left? part of this um, internet uh, revolution? Well, well, when I was in, as I said, when I was doing my uh, summer of, in 1981 uh, in, in the Bay Area, I met lots of 68ers and they went round everything. You know, they did, you know, they were in Maoist groups, they'd lived in hippie communes, they'd done exegesis. So you, we'd see all these groups as separate, but actually the punters would just float between them, you know. Uh, I met this guy who did acid with uh, with Steve Jobs, who's a school. <laughs> uh, and he, I, I, and he's, you know, he just said, well, it, it was all part of the same milieu. I mean, he wasn't a multimillionaire because he was a school teacher. And he said most sixty-eighters were, at, on average, earning less than they would have done if they hadn't become hippies. He, I remember he had this statistic from somewhere or other. Uh, and he said, yeah, but other, some of them did drift into, you know, because there's, it's job, it's a job, it's, there's money, there's success, there's fame. Uh, someone like Steve Jobs, anyway, wasn't a techie, he was a salesman. And it was Walls who did all the actual techie stuff. Uh, he, was just a, he was just the manager. Um, so, yeah, so I think Jobs didn't Jobs go to India, then he came back and did exegesis, or one, oh, yes, one of these strange psycho cult things. And then he became focused. He also probably did gargantuan amounts of cocaine, I assume, as well. Um, and they completely changed and that. That so, but they they kept some of it. So like they didn't wear suits, you know. They didn't. They, they <laughs> down. They wore. It's like, like we work. Yeah, well, I'm an old punk mod, so I, I, that's this is just three months of lockdown, and they're here. So. So I think that you have to understand they were part of that generation. And so even, you know, most, as I said, most of them were, were, had been through it. But then the money was there and they drifted into it. And those who were techies, obviously, again, you have people like Lee Felsenstein, who set up the Homebrew Computer Club. I mean, the reason why he wanted to invent a PC is he wanted something that could survive a nuclear war. And it was Wolseley who went, you're being a little crazy. Why don't we just make something and sell it? And that's what the map came out of, you know. Uh, so again, we, we forget this. We forget actually how revolutionary they were and how socialist a lot of the new left were. I mean, it's only got hidden behind all this identity politics now. They got rid of class, and again, like you know, like black power, it was got embarrassing. Um, and 
Uh, I think that's the other interesting thing. So you think of something like Wired magazine, it takes the aesthetics of it, you know, the whole <laughs> psychedelic aesthetic, it takes a bit of the identity politics of it, but not too much. And it completely gets rid of any notions of socialism. So Jeffersonian democracy then becomes quite useful because they have to have some form of political ideal. So the original liberal idea of America, which as you said, is homesteading. You know, you go there, you clear out, ethnically cleanse your original inhabitant, you set up your little farm and you survive on the frontier. And then of course, capitalism progresses and then you move further out. Uh, and it, it's like gentrification, isn't it, basically? Uh, and, and they then move across and then eventually the frontier runs out in North Dakota in the late 19th century. <laughs> and then you have to move overseas to the Philippines or Cuba or wherever. Or, out, as you say, out into space where there's nothing there. Or cyberspace, which again, you could see, I mean, there is an argument, you know, you set up small businesses and then they become Facebook eventually. But I think that's a rather weird way of looking at it because it was large corporations from the beginning who were providing the backbone of the internet. You know, IBM, when they privatised, you know, NSFnet, it went to IBM and this sort of thing. So it's always had a big corporate involvement. It's big business and big government. Um, so that's interesting. I, I think you have to focus on it as an ideology as much as anything else. Mm -hmm. But there is a legitimate side to it. I mean, you can see that, you know, coming out in sort of 1960s community media, and here we are, having a conversation between America and Europe for free. Mm -hmm. With a podcast for free. You know, we used to have to climb tower blocks and have pirate transmitters. And if we were lucky to get to a few thousand people, now you can podcast and it can be listened to for, you know, decades later. Um, so that's the other side. Because there is, you know, there is an advance. I'm not saying, so, that's why I would say I'm not really a sort of Eugenie Morrison who thinks it's all terrible and it's all going to get worse. Again, it's a dialectical process. There's advances and you know, upsides and downsides is the same thing. And I think we just we have to be very aware of it. The, the Californian ideology was again seeing as one as this like, super optimistic side. But if you know, if we wrote if I wrote it now, it would be against the other side, which is in this super pessimistic way. Which and they're both forms of McLuhanism. They think that the technology is what's important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the self-expansion of capital as fixed capital in the form of media technology and that's what they see as the driving force of history not people you know mm. the class struggle is the motor of history comrades and that seems to be the problem that that's the sort of the theoretical problem is that they think the machine which is in my view absurd uh Alex, can you tell us a bit about your work looking into the North Carolina Research Triangle Park and does that in any way tie in with the Californian ideology? That's a good question. Um, I think that, I think that um, one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is that I think that, you know, um, Silicon Valley and then maybe Boston are the two examples that people think of, like that's the American tech economy, that's the origin story. And um, in many ways it is, but um, you know, the North Carolina Research Triangle story was happening um, not long after Stanford Industrial Park got started and so forth. Um, the people in North Carolina did look to California um, for models, and this is in the 1950s. Uh, and they even brought out this guy, Pearson Stewart, who had worked for Sanford Industrial Park, which is later Sanford Research Park, uh, which is, you know, sort of a kernel of the um, 
emerging Silicon Valley economy in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, this term Silicon Valley doesn't even really start getting used until the early 70s. Um, and so in North Carolina, you, you have this place where, you know, um, it was at the very bottom of almost every metric. I mean, people think, oh, Mississippi, Alabama, but like North Carolina, lowest, lowest wages or like one rung from the bottom, um, lowest levels of educational attainment. It was an extremely poor state. If you look at other kind of metrics like uh, copyright or patents and things like that, nothing's going. Um, and they sort of um, look at this and they say, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to, we want to change this. We want better jobs. We want a better economy. And in 1955, there's this guy named R Romeo Guest, who is a contractor in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he had gone to MIT for college and he had seen what was happening um, around the Charles River, and he said, I want to build a Charles River of the South. So he said, um, why don't we take UNC Chapel Hill, the flagship state university of North Carolina, NC State University, which is sort of a tech-oriented uh, in, in engineering industrial school, and Duke University, which is a prestigious private university, why don't we take those and say, okay, this we have, we're going to use these universities as the leverage to attract investment um, and, and bring companies like IBM uh, to North Carolina. Try to bring these um, very these jobs that require a very high level of education and scientific skill, um, higher wages. Bring those companies here by saying, "Look, two big things: a, because of these universities, there are smart people here. So if you're worried about moving to the slack-jawed and bred racist South." Um, just be be assured that your engineer or chemical or, or chemist from New Jersey or Connecticut will be okay moving here because we have these universities. These are enlightened people. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's lots of culture and arts and you know shit because of the universities. And then B, relatedly, that there's a source of um, you know educated labor here that like NC State is churning out engineers and um, people with biology and chemistry degrees and so forth. Um, so, you know, they use that as their strategy to say, how do we get from the very bottom um, and try to sort of create a tech economy from scratch? Uh, I think that's what I found really intriguing about it because um, it was so deliberate and purposeful. Like it was, it, there really was not a tech economy whatsoever. There were, it was really like envisioning what this future economy would look like from a from scratch really i mean like just if you were going to build it from the ground up so it's a question of like what did these like local bankers business people industrialists politicians academics in north carolina what did they think the future post-industrial tech economy was going to look like and they built research triangle park which is sort of a model of what that is it's um, very suburban very antiseptic very modernist um, very spread out because it's very much in the, the spirit of the Cold War, um, just sort of dispersal and spread of population. Um, and, you know, now it kind of doesn't work very well because that's uh, kind of an outdated um, model and uh, it's not necessarily what uh, people want now, um, especially sort of in the current um, iteration of the tech economy. So the end of my book is sort of looking at, like, how do you retrofit this and also, um, how do you address the fact that there are just appalling uh, racial and economic inequalities baked into the cake 
in spite of the fact that this thing seemed like it kind of worked, like, you know, all these big companies had come there, there are lots of new higher paying jobs, like it's sort of begun to spawn its own uh, local biotech and, and sort of quote unquote indigenous, um, you know, uh, innovation networks there. Um, but so it kind of worked, but like if you look at any metrics of uh, economic inequality, infant mortality, things like that, um, the the Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill area, which is where Research Triangle Park is, um, fares just horribly. And um, I guess the 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 point I'm trying to make at the end of the book is that um, it didn't achieve uh, an amelioration of social inequality because that's not what it was designed to do at all. <laughs> When I, when I was with Fred Turner in Stamford, we were, we were driving around and he took me to this place. I mean, there's this huge hedge to, uh, sort of separating off this section from all the, all the houses where the white people live. And we drive around this hedge and it's a trailer park where yeah. all the Hispanic laborers live, yeah. all, the, all the gardeners and cleaners. And he said, look, he said, the Californian ideology, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then, then we went to what, so Facebook then had its headquarters in Stamford, and we went there, and it was really funny, because in the front entrance, which is another Californian ideology site he was showing me, they had a clenched fist salute above the, uh, above the, the entrance where the, you know, the, the secretary who lets you in, the door person lets you in, and we're standing there, and I was trying to take a photograph, and this woman comes out, who's Hispanic, uh, Mexican, I assume, actually, by, judging by her accent, and she had this huge... Uh, clear plastic bag all full of beer cans uh, things from some party the night before so i got this wonderful photograph of her which i she was she said why do you want to take a photograph of me and i said the californian ideology <laughs> but it was great i mean i just thought you get that thing but it's simply what you said because those deliberate creations of this sort of high-tech area. They did it all over the world. You know, in Scotland, they have, you know, Silicon Glen. In London, we have Silicon Roundabout. And really, none of them have been successful apart from Shenzhen, uh, which is just north of Hong Kong, which is now taking over from Silicon Valley, basically. I mean, it will be the centre of the world tech industry in, probably in a few years. Once they can work out how to make cheaper and faster chips than, the, than American companies, then, they, then they'll take over, essentially. Uh, but that's really the most successful version of it. But, you know, there's, uh, there's, I think there's a, someone was telling me in Malaysia, they've got like a silicon forest. So they just put the word silicon, then another you know, a noun after it, everywhere. Silicon Alley, the Silicon Prairie. <laughs> like... Yes, Alley, yeah, that's true in New York, isn't it? Silicon Alley, yeah, that's true. Yeah. We've got about that. Not, yeah, not just... quite, quite, wasn't quite. Well, Silicon Valley's really weird, though, because it's sort of no there, there. I remember being driven round it, and someone said, "This is Silicon Valley." I said, "Where is it?" And they said, "Well, that's the point. There isn't a centre. Where do people? You know, you think like usually urban settings, people get together in a space and network. And you think, well, that's why something like the well must have been so important because there's a, there wasn't really like a sort of a, a centre for it where people could sort of hang out and just serendipitously meet. Which I guess is why it all moved up into San Francisco because at least that. You can do that in that setting. It's, it's so funny you say that because um, I, I quote several people in the book about RTP um, saying literally, almost verbatim, like, where is it? Like they drove, like so, uh, somebody drove them through uh, the park and it just looks like a bunch of trees and uh, <laughs> long corporate like uh, driveways. 
and huge yeah. setbacks. And they're like, oh, wait, where was it? Did, I, did we already see it? Because there's a real sense of placelessness. And, um, you know, it, it, part of that really is a very Cold War corporate mentality of um, wanting to keep your employees separate from other employees. You don't want them hanging out, milling at the coffee shop, at the bar, you know, filling um, other people. Um, and now, you know, this, they were very worried about sort of corporate, um, secrecy. And so they wanted these things to be, you know, separated little bunkers. And now there's this whole idea of sort of the, um, the, you know, uh, the, 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 the uh, not, you know, the sort of um, emergent property that comes from people like actually being in proximity and having discussions and, and, and the creativity that comes from that is, is, is on a premium now and sort of design paradigm, but definitely not in the 50s and 60s. Well, I think you have to understand that, you know, the cities were very crowded, very polluted, uh, had lots of social strife in them, crime, all the rest of it. So, this whole suburbanization of America in the 1950s, that's part of it. You know, you go to, and again, it's really strange if you're a European going to these campus universities in America, which is like in the middle of nowhere, and everything's scattered all over the place. And again, it seems very difficult. Where do people meet up? Where do you have discussions with your fellow academics or students or whether they haven't and then you realize that's deliberate they don't want them to all call, all the students to congregate together because they might cause a revolution or something um, <laughs> <laughs> was it Buff buffalo i went to buffalo to do a talk there and the law department is actually designed like deliberately designed like a fort so the first floor is completely solid so the students couldn't storm the law department <laughs> it's like early 70s militarized architecture and again, that's the same. They've got two campuses, which are, are deliberately a long way apart. So you can't, you know, if you take over one campus, they're at least going to keep the other one, you know. <laughs> and again, I think that's that very strange, yeah, you say it's Cold War, but I think it's also a reaction against the city, which came from that post-war boom. And now, of course, we all want to go back into the city. And, except we've got a pandemic, so they're probably okay now. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a really interesting question that I've been thinking about a lot. Like, ever since the you know '90s, there's been this back to the city gentrification sort of. Uh, the city is safe now and hip and cool for white people to live in, um, and that seemed to be the sort of agglomerating uh, tendency is for you know uh, people to just flock the educated sort of creative quote unquote creative class people. Um, moving to the cities, and that seemed to be just going along, you know, swimmingly. And now this idea that we all have to be far apart from each other, I'm really wondering if that's going to change sort of the population flows, uh, and people maybe aren't going to like the idea of living in a, you know, a shoebox in Manhattan, um, you know, three inches from the next person. Uh, maybe, maybe the suburbs will become uh, very, uh, you know, uh, desired again by the sort of uh, techno um pmc elite well doug rushkoff moved out to the suburbs i mean it may for financial reasons but i told him now he's he started a trend i mean i i, <laughs> I, mean, I got i caught the virus i got the virus three months ago and i'm still recovering from it and i, I know quite a lot of friends in london who had it whereas people in the out in the sticks they haven't got it because they know we're near anybody else so i can see that you know if there's another wave as long as we're not china or Vietnam or South Korea, the West lacks the social self-discipline to get rid of the virus. 
just um, so yeah that so maybe you have to be in suburbs because we can't organize ourselves to get rid of it by conscious planning <laughs> well, we were going to touch on a little bit just kind of how the, the the future as it were quote unquote is kind of shaking out with you know people are kind of getting optimized out of jobs and the sort of amazonification of the world you know where drones are delivering to people's houses and this kind of thing uh richard how, how would you how would you just sort of describe these last 20 years? Are they are they different to what you are imagining? Well, they must be different to how you imagined, I assume. And how, how do you how do you look back I, on... I go around saying we were correct about everything. Really? That's that, that's my line. Well, we just, <laughs> I, 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 I wrote the California Islander and we were correct about everything. We did pin the tail on the donkey, but it wasn't, you know, this neoliberal ideology was bunkum basically uh i i think i think you know it was, and, and the triumph of big business was predictable i mm. said i think what's i my problem is now that it's gone the other way that you've got the sort of as i said the sort of eugenie morozov approach you know he gave uh, where everything is going to hell in a hangar you know where it's neo-feudalism so it then mm. fails to see the positive sides of it you know so you know you know facebook is basically an nsa you know, mass surveillance scheme. But on the other hand, it does allow, you know, and it encourage, you know, Trump and Brexit and Bolsonaro could all be blamed. But on the other hand, it does create all these amazing connections between people. And yeah, despite yeah. that, you know, despite one side, you get the other side. And the same could be said of lots of these things. Uh, as for the, you know, the, 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 you know, the classic creative destruction of the capitalist economy, well, you know, are we, you know, every, again, like a bit like the predictions of the, the glorious internet future or terrible internet dystopia, uh, you know, every generation it's been said that automation is going to create structural mass unemployment. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that in the early 1960s, there's this, uh, was it the man, man, manifesto, the triple alliance or something? Anyway, they talk about cyber nation. Uh, and they were saying, oh, you know, we've now got factories where, you know, robots, basically robots are making robots. And it's going to, you know, wipe out all these jobs. But in America, the reason why manufacturing jobs were wiped out was nothing to do with the technology. It was to do with the fact that it was all shipped off to China because it was cheaper. It was the labour that was cheaper. Um, and that's the interesting thing about it. So it's not, you know, they, they said, oh, it's all new technology. But actually, it was globalisation that did it, actually. Uh, and then it wasn't the Chinese, it was American companies who thought it was cheaper and easier to outsource it to some developing country where people were desperate and were willing to work six days a week, ten hours a day, because the, the, the alternative was working seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day, standing in a paddy field, as this Chinese friend of mine pointed out. Uh, that's, that's, you know, that's that's the, you know, that's the powering thing of it. So I actually, you say this about well, it will get rid of, you know, delivery drivers or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the question is, where do they, you know, will the economy redeploy them? So far, in the last 200 years, it's always redeployed labour somewhere else. Because capitalism depends on the exploitation of human labour. It can't make profit out of machines. You know, uh, that's where surplus value comes from. Uh, the difficulty is, if you, I mean, theoretically, I suppose you could expel all labor, most labour from production, but then it wouldn't be capitalism anymore. Then you'd have to have cybernetic communism, 
And that I'm sure Wired magazine would have been horrified. Louis Rosetto as his nightmare. If, if the, but that, we did. I did write this piece in 1999 for a Marshall McLuhan conference, which is about cyber communism, how the Americans were building the uh, building communism. Because I, I got up and said at the beginning of this lecture, I said the Americans built the only working model of communism in human history. It's called the internet. <laughs> And I thought this was very original. And then this friend of mine pointed out there's a letter from McLuhan in 1965 when he goes coming back from the Bilderberg conference, and he said, "He says I don't know what you're complaining about communism for. We, by which he means the Americans, you know, Canadian, we are the most communist people in human history." And I thought, "Yeah, very clever man." <laughs> he wasn't invited back for the next conference. <laughs> I always tell people um, that it's actually really difficult always being right about everything. I mean, <laughs> you, would, you would think that it's like really fun, but it's actually like not as easy as it looks. Not <laughs> that we don't get paid for it. I mean, you know, it, you could just if you spouted out all the nonsense, you got very well paid jobs, and you could probably retire on some in some really nice ranch house in California. You know. But uh, I, I have a little flat in Stratford in London, so instead, so <laughs> I, it was it probably wasn't a good career move. But uh, uh, I, I told you I was trained to think. <laughs> Dangerous thing in late capitalism. <laughs> um, I I have a kind of half formed thought that I'm hoping you guys can help fill in for me. Vaughn, is it? You Vaughn? Vaughn, yes. Yeah, great name. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. With all of this talk about kind of the spatial aspect of everything and um, cyberspace as a final, final frontier, um, that brings to mind my, my very kind of basic idea of the Turner thesis and uh, the American frontier making the American character an American democracy. And every time the frontier line is pushed, there's a new aspect of American character added on. And I'm wondering if you guys think that, uh, or if you have any anything to kind of say around um, whether this cyberspace frontier line is adding to American character and American democracy or taking away from it, or rather making kind of a new global Turner thesis that, that the, the cyberspace. But the thing is about cyberspace is it wasn't a space. So it's a exactly. flat, flat screen. I mean, so, you know, this comes out of science fiction, doesn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, uh, the metaverse, the matrix, you know, cyber, I mean, cyberspace, you know, is William Gibson. So, who famously didn't have a computer when he wrote the Neuromancer. It was written on a mechanical typewriter. Uh, so in a way, what they were trying to do is retrofit that particular science fiction fantasy onto the internet. I mean, they had all this stuff about VR, which they're still going. Again, that's one of those futures that's always around the corner. Mm -hmm. We're all going to be living in VR, but never ever happens, as far as I can see. So every <laughs> few years, they relaunch VR and it flops again. Um, so, so I think the first thing is to say that it's never been a space. And so it's interesting about why they wanted it to be a space, other than just that it was a nice science fiction. You know, obviously it makes good science fiction novels and films, but it doesn't really understand the internet. And then 
so I think that's one thing that you might be worth thinking about why America wants to have a frontier mm. when, when the frontier closed in the 1890s. Uh, and you say it's a new technology, so it's seen like a frontier or invading Vietnam or going to the moon or something. But they're not space. They're not like, you know, you're not cleaning the American uh, indigenous population off hunting land and then turning <laughs> it into commercial farming. You know, so they have thinly no, particularly the nomadic peoples. I'm not talking about the Pueblo or some of the eastern tribes, but, you know, in the plains, you know, they're very, very low population density, hunter-gatherer, nomads, and you can replace them with much higher density commercial farming, credibly more productive. Uh, not very good for the indigenous population, but obviously for the European settlers it was. And that is a frontier in the real sense of the word. But the, the internet is not a frontier. It's just a new business opportunity. So why see it like a frontier? But it's the Wild West myth. It's really hardwired. And particularly you think the generation that are doing it. In the, so they're... So they, see, in the 1990s, so when they were young, they were probably watching Bonanza on television <laughs> and board movies and things like that. Right, so right. They, they had the Western. See, the Western sort of died as a genre, didn't it, in the 1970s. I mean, there are, there are some Westerns, but it's not, it's not a, I think in the 1950s, it was the dominant genre, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and so they, they grew up with that. And so, that's probably the last generation that saw that. I mean, I don't think you know, millennials or Zoomers don't think like that, I'm sure, because they don't really watch Westerns. Right. Uh, so that's, again, it's interesting. And then, of course, the other thing, you could actually attack Frederick Turner because what he's not talking about is slavery. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, the whole manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes back to, you know, as I said, the original Jeffersonian democracy is an alliance between the southern slave owners and the western settlers, you know, because obviously the people who, you know, if you have poor whites and they're not, they're not being part, becoming part of the slaveocracy, you say, go west, young man, go and settle. You know, then you, and, that, and it's the break with that western settlers that creates the Republican Party, the Free Soil Party, mm -hmm. who weren't. As people internally go on about, oh, Abraham Lincoln wasn't woke about African Americans, but, he said, well, <laughs> but yeah, he did. But he did manage to liber help liberate four million of them from slavery, which is more than Europe are fucking going to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's so that's uh, that seems to be something you need to think about 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 the, the that whole post-reconstruction the current again you know all the debates are going on at the moment has to do with the failure of reconstruction mm -hmm. you know that they keep saying why ulysses s grant should be admired you know he's the last that was the last charge basically where you had african-americans in the senate they were running the states you know they were you know they absorbed they were going to be absorbed into the melting pot uh, which didn't happen because white racism the jim crow asserted itself mm -hmm. And now you're still dealing with that. It's incredible. I was there on the 150th anniversary of the Civil War with an African-American president, and there was zero celebrations of it. Not one celebra public celebration of the end of slavery. Well, I'm sure that's not true, but... No, no, but you know what? Yeah, but if it was like the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution, they had a massive parade through the centre of Paris. It was the biggest thing. But there was almost no celebration of it then. Where was it? You know, 
And it, uh, the hundreds of thousands of white males went out and got themselves killed, maimed and traumatized to liberate their African-American fellow citizens. And this should have been a massive celebration. But it wasn't because you have to, because of the, the, the fragile snowflake white southerners who still support slavery, basically. <laughs> and they're northern apologists. And I think it's a key thing. I said the frontier myth, I think is interesting because it's a way of, you know, and Jeffersonian democracy, it's a way of not talking about that key thing about America. So as a foreigner, you know, as a, a European, if you're a European, that's the thing that really strikes you about America. Uh, you know, because we have racism in Europe, but it's a different sort of <laughs> it out of empire. Yeah. It comes out of empire, where America, you know, slavery didn't exist in Europe. You know, well, it's obviously in classical times, but it didn't exist in the modern era. Whereas America, like Brazil, was one of the few slave civilization in the whole of human history. Uh, and that seems like a really key part of it. And it's, as I say, it's not just the period of the antebellum, it's the failure of reconstruction. And that is an absolutely key moment in American history. And so talking, Frederick Turner, in a way, who's you know, very interesting, and I, you know, he's part of that group like Charles Beard, who obviously played a key moment in thinking about historiography of America, but he ignores slavery. And partly the frontier, the emphasis on the frontier, is talking about white people and indigenous Americans, not talking about African Americans. And that's part of the whole reconstruction settlement, in my view. I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we learned from Donald Trump is that sometimes you should just, like, listen to what people are saying and take them seriously, <laughs> that they actually intend to do what they say they're going to do. Um, like, sometimes it's just text. Um, and I think that, you know, Jefferson, going from Jefferson to Turner and everybody in between, um, they were quite explicit on this idea of a safety valve, that, like, the frontier was actually just a way of perpetually displacing our problems and never having to reckon with um, yes. the problems of the old world, of cities, of industry, of inequality. Like, we can just keep giving white men more land and then we'll just push it out, push it out. Maybe we'll take over uh, Mexico and Panama, too. Mm -hmm. Like, we thought about doing that, right? Um, they, they did take half of Mexico, but um, there's this idea, uh, the Jefferson... Talk, used which was an empire of liberty like it was a very um frank admission that like we're just going to kind of kick the can down the road about just everything and obviously the erasure of the slave um the slavery dimension of it is is a big part of the ideology but i think i, that's think, I think alex though, the key thing is that liberty depended on slavery it's that liberals it's the mm -hmm. liberals they're not democrats i mean this is this you know there's this wonderful thing where they say they say this also about Europe, we're liberal democracy. Well, that's a phrase like Marxism-Leninism or Islamic Republic. They're two words that mean opposite, and you push them together. But America was never designed as a democracy. It's a liberal society for individual male property, white male property owners, in the case. And I think that's why the frontier is so important, because you've got to give the citizen the male, and also actually eventually women, because the white women will also have been, they've got to have property because they can't be citizens without property. And a proletarianization, which Jefferson realized, he looks at cities and says, there's the urban poor, the mob, and that's what we want to stop. We want America to stay a small town, rural society. And cities, as you say, are over there, usually the other side of the Atlantic, hopefully. 
Well, I mean, I think that speaks to um, what I was saying, which is that um, this was a, actually a pretty frank and conscious attempt to displace those problems and not address them. Um, and I think that's part of uh, the American yearning for uh, an, an escape hatch, like an out, to say, well, you know, um, there's always Alaska, like, or, or we could go to space, or we could go to cyberspace. Like, um, there's always some way to Vietnam. pull out a utopian, um, you know, uh, vision. Um, and, you know, obviously that benefits some more than others. We know that for a fact. But um, that's a real impulse. And to uh, answer Vaughn's question, um, just because something is not literally exi existing in, you know, Euclidean space <laughs> doesn't mean that it's not a space if that's what people um, think of it as, that if that's what it means to people. Um, so the cyberspace, I think that people are very invested in the idea of it because um, it seems like this new realm to escape to, to provide sort of unlimited bounty. And the way I've thought about it is more in the sense of enclosure. And that's the way I was thinking about it in my book, Democracy of Sound. Um, and other people writing about intellectual property have uh, made this uh, argument as well, that um, there was a sense of this being a big, huge commune, communal land where everyone could roam free. And what we've seen since the late 90s is the fencing in of all of that space uh, by your AOLs first, and then your Googles, your Facebooks, your Twitters, your so on and so forth. Um, so I think the um, you know apt sort of analogy would be um, the enclosure of common lands into um, private ownership. Uh, but that sort of that that whole commons metaphor is a complete misunderstanding of medieval history. Uh, the commons was a key part of feudalism. You needed somewhere to graze your cattle and collect firewood. An enclosure in itself is a good thing because it raises agricultural productivity so people can escape from subsistence farmers. It's the question of who does the enclosures. You know, in the English Revolution, the diggers were enclosers. That's what they did. They were digging up the commons and turning it into cooperative farming. So it's whether it's enclosed as capitalist farming or cooperative farming. And that's the key thing. And so I just think this whole thing, it's just a misreading, actually, of Capital Volume 1, in my view. And as people who don't understand medieval history either. Uh, and it's a great... It's a Everybody very, who uses this metaphor understands that it's about the consolidation of control in private hands by um, the elite. I don't think that that's um, a misunderstanding. <laughs> I, think, I think that what people don't understand is the commons was control. So the diggers were kicked off the commons by the landowners, the local landowners, who were pissed off that they were enclosing the commons that they were using for grazing their animals and they were getting firewood from. So it was actually the landowners who were protecting the commons. So you could see that's actually quite a good metaphor because actually you think that guilt, that moment of netizens and you know and cyber anarchy was actually underpinned by the military industrial complex. You know, it's like the Free Software Foundation, Richard Stallman, he's in MIT, which is, you know, basically the US military. So that's the weird thing, you know, he didn't like copywriting, you know, I don't know. I tried to send him a document and he complained that RTF was a copyright format, so I had to send it to an ASCII, uh, <laughs> which removed all European letters, which I thought was quite funny. Uh, but he was but he was funded by the US military, who were going around murdering people all over the planet, you know. So 
again, it's that contradiction I think we need to think about. I think that closely, I said, I understand where you're coming from. I've read George Carpentis and you know, all the Midnight Notes people. And I think and it became a very strong myth. But it's, it's, it's actually, it, I think if you think about what the Commons really was, it actually it was an integral part of feudalism. It's I not think if you um, take people seriously about what they're saying and what it means to them, then you would understand a lot more. Well, no, because what they don't want to talk about is the social relations of production. So that's the whole thing about using a term. You know, it, comes, it goes back to the beginning of this question. It's a using this territorial metaphor is a way of not talking about social relations of production. You use it as a space, as a, as a fetish. It's a fetish, basically, uh, to use a technical term. And so if you think really what was, you know, what's going on, I mean, the, the, you know, the encounter between the white settlers and the indigenous population is between, you know, a bourgeois society and a tribal society. Tribals, you know, the, particularly the Plains Indians, I mean, not, again, not necessarily the Pueblo or some of the Eastern tribes, but they were, they were kinship groups. They didn't have property. They didn't own property because they were mobile. Uh, you know, you didn't want lots of property because you had to carry it around. <laughs> so... They were kinship groups and, and actually forming territorial units was actually part of the process of forming class societies. I mean, Engels talks about this in The Origin of Family Property. So, or if you want to be American, Henry Morgan, ancient society, the man who lived with the Iroquois, he, he, could, he saw this, you know, he knew about the indigenous population. He, you know, he got adopted into the Iroquois. And that's very clear that there's this shift from organising society around kinship groups to organising society around territory and that is the beginning of class society private property the state and all the rest of it and cops so are the commons my problem is it's not as left-wing as they think it is so that's my little so, my little rant against the commons <laughs> <That's a metaphor. laughs> so so richard um I, we have touched this, on this a lot but you know people like louis rosetto actually attacked your piece yeah, and they attacked the you know the your the risk takers and you know technologists and cowboys who were making these moves and changing the world and 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 he said that you had a I think a misunderstanding of of economics and and, and things like that. How would you see the the Californian ideologists within the sort of new right um, sort of tradition? Like where, where they sit, because we're saying that they aren't trying to um, aid the the policies that would would benefit some of the people who either been displaced or have become sort of um, you know, lower class labor for these new, uh, whether it's in North Carolina or whether it's in California for these for these new tech centers and and for the for um, these these tech workers, but. How would you root the Californian ideologist? Like, do do they have a particularly sort of basic Reaganite take on the economy and on on cyberspace, or or is it something different? You could look at someone like George Gilder, who was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, who wrote a book called Life After Television, and that was like one of the first things that says, "No, Silicon Valley is the future of American capitalism. It's the free market." Which is obviously true, isn't it? Untrue. It never was the free market. I mean, you know, these venture capitalists are the free market, but it's propped up by the state. 
California with the water supply, the universities, the highways. It's, it's a massive state intervention project. 40 cents of every defense dollar is spent in California. Uh, all the key technology, internet, the chips, all, you know, everything, it all comes out of state-funded research. So in that sense, it's not that different from Chinese state capitalism. I mean, the difference between Shenzhen and, and Silicon Valley is that in Shenzhen, they're quite open about what they're doing, whereas in California, they have to hide it behind all this neoliberal rhetoric. Uh, so that's, I think, is the, that's the thing. Yeah, so they, 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 they were... You know, again, we now now neoliberalism is widely recognised, but of course, at the time, it was it, it it was still relatively new. It sort of came in in the early nineteen eighties with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, and people didn't really think it was a dominant, really dominant, until the collapse of the Union. I mean, that's, that's the key. That's the key moment where it seemed like you know it was the end of history. You know, there is no alternative. And in a sense, this California ideology picks that up and says, well, that it's not just the it's sort of the future. The future is this, you know, very postmodern. The future is a perpetual present of neoliberalism. In the Matrix, where they're constantly in 1999, aren't they? It's on a temporal loop of 1999. Uh, and that's in a sense what it is. It's, so the future is actually... So California is both a beta version of the future of the rest of the world, but it also it's a sort of perpetual present at the same time, which is quite interesting. So it can't evolve any further than, than this. There is no, you know, communism has been, there is no communist future anymore. Uh, and that's a difficulty. That's the advantage the Chinese have. At least they think there's going to be a utopia in 40 years' time. <laughs> so they, can, they can aim the state plan at something even if they don't really believe in it at least they've got a future but it, but that, that's the strange thing about the imaginary future of Silicon Valley is in a sense it's already here the future is now um, so that's it so it's both a perpetual present and an imaginary future at the same time uh, Richard, I was wondering your, your thoughts on, have you seen the documentary series All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace by Adam Curtis? I think he touches on the California ideology there. Where he copied and pasted something <laughs> that I wrote. So I recognised my own words coming Because <laughs> he did, uh, specifically just looking at a quote here about the, the original promise of the California ideology was that computers would liberate us from the old forms of political control and we will become Randian heroes. I'm not sure how you feel about that. In control of our own destiny. Instead, today we feel the opposite, that we are helpless components in a global system, a system that is controlled by a, a rigid logic that we are powerless to challenge or to change. I know you've kind of touched on this already, but did, did you have any specific he's thoughts on that? He's a dystopian, the clue of this, isn't he? I mean, that way. It's interesting because I've watched quite a few, you know, he's very popular among students, so you tend to, I tend to watch them to. Not so much now, but a few years ago, like there was like mm -hmm. a default setting among the students with, with his, with his uh, documentaries. And it's interesting because he always has the same thing where he, ha he discovers a small group of thinkers who, like a conspiracy, go around and change the world, usually for the worse. Because <laughs> uh, I was, I was it's neocons, that's right, because he, ha he has them, you know, they all, you know, he basically thinks Leo Strauss is responsible for the neocon movement, but completely misses 
that actually they were Trotskyists first, and then they became sort of corporate liberal, and they only discovered Leo Strauss in the 70s. So they already existed as a group. So it's really the other way around. It wasn't Leo Strauss creating the neocons. It's actually the neocons needed a thinker. And so they, and they found Leo Strauss sitting in some obscure American university. They went, oh, right, he looks good. We'll use him. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's interesting that he thinks he, he said it's not like technology in control, but ideas in control. Yeah, it, it, it's a more history of ideas as opposed to a social history that he's. Well, it's to... Marx and Engels say in, California, in their German ideology. Well, we nicked the title for California ideological. He said, you know, it's, 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 it's the rule of the Dalai Lamas or ghosts. It's an inversion of reality. You know, rea you know, people have these ideas floating around, but they only become important at certain moments because they, people, they become relevant. Like neoliberalism. I mean, neoliberalism really comes out of the 1920s and 1930s, but it was irrelevant for decades because, you know, state capitalism, big government, big business, all that was really important. You know, that's a national Fordism, really from the 20, really from, well, especially after the Wall Street crash, right up to the 1970s economic crisis. They, they were just considered to be cranks. But then when they needed them, they just suddenly, Milton Friedman and Hayek and von Mises, and, or they suddenly become the key people you have to refer to. Uh, and okay, you know, obviously, as we now know, a lot of it was being pushed by big foundations, lots of money, but it wouldn't have become popular unless people needed it to become popular. And the same way, you can see that, I mean, I've just been writing a bit about Marx coming in and out of fashion, you know, so in the last 150 years, sometimes Marx is incredibly fashionable, and sometimes it's incredibly unfashionable. So when we wrote the California idea, it was very unfashionable, including on the left, to be overtly into Marx. Now, Team Vogue writes about Marx, and actually quite sensibly. I was most most delighted. Comprehensive. <laughs> think I, I, the, the, the rising generation are definitely going to be good. Alec, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, so, sorry, we were going to say anything else there? Uh... Vaughan, did I okay. ask a question, Vaughan? Uh, uh, well, I did just actually have a question for both of you. I was going to start, Alex. Um, is there, is there kind of, an, anything, anything kind of, kind of how, how? Oh, is there some echo going on at the moment? Can someone's broadcasting you on the speaker? Okay, we'll try that again. Uh, Alex, um, could you maybe talk a little bit about kind of technology as it's kind of shaping up now? There's a lot uh, kind of recently around things like privacy on the internet and that kind of thing, and you know whether or not new laws were going to come in and how that was going to change things. I was just wondering if you could maybe. Uh, kind of look in a crystal ball and start maybe seeing how things are shaping up on the sort of personal user side of things as far as technology and how that is starting to, to change and maybe some of the, the key points around that. So you mean in terms of um, privacy, surveillance? Um, issues? Yeah, and maybe just if there's anything, you know, we've kind of talked about this idea on the, on the show so far around you know, the kind of the good and the bad of the internet, as it were, and, you know, what it's both given and what it's kind of taken away. I was wondering whether or not from a, a more user-focused point of view, whether or not there's any kind of key challenges which are kind of coming up now or whether things are going to be kind of reshaped. You know, it's talked about previously about the 
kind of the early 2000s and the late 99 is you know kind of like the the wild west of the internet as it were and things sort of gradually beginning to change over time i was just wondering whether or not there's any kind of key shifts that have been happening either now or key shifts you think will be happening kind of maybe later on as far as how we use this space as it were the internet that's a really interesting question i'm kind of going over it in my head to see if there's a um any kind of good answer rooting around up there in the attic. <laughs> um, you know, I think one of the things that I have noticed is that um, in the 1990s, everybody or almost everybody was um, just, you know, jerking themselves off like crazy about how like utopian <laughs> romantic uh, the internet was going to be. Um, as a purely liberatory force, like, you know, there's that, uh, quote that's been attributed to Bill Clinton. I think, I don't know if he actually said it, that trying to con control or regulate the internet is like trying to nail jello to a wall. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we know for a fact that is very not true, <laughs> um, at this point. And I think, you know, the great firewall in China was probably like the canary in the coal mine there that. Like, this is not just this uh, autonomous force that can't be controlled that um, sort of seeps in like water rolling downhill and eroding everything, all the old power structures. I think that's the way people thought about it for a long time. There seems to have been an inflection point sometime around 2010, I would be my you know rough guess, um, from people seeing the, um, the Internet as this space of, of liberation, of freedom of expression, of uh, in, in, including or giving a, a platform or elevating people who would have been marginalized, people who make YouTube shows about, you know, video games or whatever, um, and becoming like, you know, entrepreneurs or stars, like this very uh, democratizing you know, utopian idea of what the internet is, and a, like a pivot toward a much darker <laughs> kind of uh, dystopian view and I, I i can't put my finger on exactly when it was or why it was but uh we definitely saw that like a giving everybody a voice in the platform sounds romantic and awesome but you know it can be used for like any tool it can be used in lots of different ways for mm -hmm. good or ill um and maybe right-wing populism or nationalism is uh, trumpism whatever um is sort of an expression of that um and the surveillance and the fact that like we've sort of done 1984 to ourselves, like we invited a telescreen into <laughs> our every room of our house and our back pockets and every moment of our lives. We're just like, like Richard said, an NSA um, operation here, <laughs> uh, but we're willingly do it, right? It's like a synthesis of 1984 and Brave New World where it's mm. both the surveillance state and it's driven by pleasure or at least the um, illusion of of satisfying your dopamine centers. Um, there's something, you know, a dark turn there that has happened. And I think that we're in a really interesting moment um, that where people are really you know, looking at things like Amazon and saying, wow, like this is bad. Like maybe, I mean, it's really cool that I can order this book and it gets here tomorrow. Like that's, that's awesome. But um, it's also like a gulag and um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's this massive, you know, um, dark empire and so i think that it's going to be really interesting to see if people are willing to uh i'm, I'm very skeptical of like boycotts and all sort of consumer behavior based uh, activism but 
I do wonder if people are souring in general on the idea of Facebook, on the idea of Amazon, of these big, you know, um, just Leviathan-like organizations that um, have become, you know, basically like the furniture in our living rooms. Um, I, I think there's a possibility there. Um, I'm not too optimistic, but I do think that there's probably a potential for people to, um, just by their, you know, not even conscious activism, but just by their just, you know, everyday consumer behavior to move in a different direction. I think the idea that going from this Wild West uh, utopian communal space to um, this, you know, panopticon that is very dark and disturbing, <laughs> um, um, it, that's, a, that's a change that's happened. And I'm, I'm really interested to see what the response uh, culturally and politically is to that. And just um, as one extra side note, I would say um, – Everything does change. I mean, like, these things are not fixed in place forever. Um, AOL bought Time Warner. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. AOL was a company that just was basically a front page for <laughs> the Internet. Mm -hmm. And it bought, like, one of the giants of, like, content production of the 20th century. And that was supposed to symbol, symbolize the supremacy of the new, you know, tech companies and new tech mm -hmm. economy. And where, where is AOL now? Like, your great-grandmother has an AOL email address still, but... <laughs> um, so, you know, these sort of incumbents, you know, it seems like uh, Microsoft was all powerful and it still is super powerful, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, was superseded in some ways by Apple and Apple will surely be superseded by something else. And um, the social networks, I, I, I do think that like Twitter might not exist in 10 years or, or if it does, it's like a shell of itself, like MySpace or something, um, which I don't know if that's good, bad or ugly, but um uh, something's going to change. I, I really hope that, um, you know, the Amazons and the Facebooks of the world are not sort of, uh, you know, permanently uh, entrenched forever and ever. We'll see. I haven't checked my MySpace stock in a while, but I hope it's doing okay. Um, <laughs> when we, when we, in, 2000, in 2007, we were publishing uh, Imaginary Futures, and it was really funny. At the beginning of the year, MySpace was the dominant social media. So we set up a page. And in that six months between <laughs> us starting the campaign and actually launching the book in the autumn, uh, it completely disappeared and was replaced by Facebook. It was extreme mm -hmm. how fast it happened. Uh, Rupert, if you actually look at the media of that time, there's a nice transition between when TV shows and films yeah. try and be hip and young and mention my MySpace page to very quickly transition into a Facebook page. Well, I, assume, I assume that, you know, it seems to be TikTok seems to be taken. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'd never heard of it until I was interviewed outside my local tube station by some <laughs> enthusiastic teenagers. So I looked it up and then I realised it was the first Chinese social media to take over. Yeah, um, that's massive. Uh, yeah, and it, it seems to be absolutely extraordinary. It's interesting because I teach students too, you know, so they're like in their 18 to 20, well, and it's, it's their younger brothers and sisters. They're already too old. It's brilliant. <laughs> they're, they're, so if you're slightly younger, obviously it's like middle, the teenagers, and they go, oh, you know, he's at university, which well, she's, she's far too old, so he doesn't get TikTok. But it's interesting <laughs> what you said, Alex, about the Great Firewall of China, and, you know, the West is no different. I think the thing is, I mean, in a sense, we, the California ideology, we probably have said this more, but the, the idea that somehow the Chinese model is different from the Western model is, is, is really not true because it was, it was always a spy, you know, it was always a spy project. It was always a surveillance project. 
right from the beginning, Google, Facebook, it, that's what it was set up as, part of the three C's, you know, the command, control, and et cetera, uh, system. So you to, to, to divorce the internet as a project from, uh, you know, from, from the American military industrial complex, no sense. I mean, the first computer networks were designed for fighting nuclear war. That's actually what they are. You know, the GUI, the graphic user interfaces, you know, it was divided for admirals, generals, and seven-year-olds. Again, so they could blow the planet up. Uh, so I think we need to always remember that it's, it's complete. They're completely in, and there are moments when we've managed to, you know, pull bits of it out, like this conversation we're having now. You know, where we're riding on the back of this technology and doing something hopefully more creative with it. Um, so if you look at, I mean, it's interesting if you look at the Chinese example because they don't really have private privacy in the same sense that we do. It's interesting at the last National People's Congress, they've actually uh, adopted a civil code which has privacy in it, and they're doing it for e. One of the, one of the things they're doing it is for commons. So they, you know, they're creating a capitalist society. So you need a certain amount of privacy legislation for to make it work. So, but obviously from the point of view of the state. Uh, we we are obviously you know there's a great book called we are we have been harmonised which is about mainly about the way it's used for political control, but if you think about the recent pandemic I mean America is 125,000 dead and rising, um, and in in China who was dissed by all the Western media for being totalitarian they got about four and a half thousand maybe slightly more, uh, and that's partly to do I mean obviously it's mainly to do with the party they still have despite 40 years of modernization, they still have party cells at the local level that can do things like you know, check everybody, you know, do all the tracking, tracing, isolating, make sure people don't break quarantine. It, it, uh, CGTN, their, their, their sort of BBC world government line machine on the internet, yeah, they were showing people being nailed into their apartments so they couldn't go out and infect their neighbours. Uh, but They've got all that, which is sort of older, but what they do have is apps. And so the whole the technology of being able to track people and you know, use geolocation and, you know, if you can't go into the, you know, into the underground system unless you've got a green on your phone. And if you go to a certain area and the people are infected, you've been near people who are infected, it will immediately force you to quarantine yourself because you can't do anything. And that, it's that granularity of control, which is quite scary on the way, but on the other hand, they don't have 125,000 dead and rising. And you know, they've got a population four times that of America. Um, so, again, I think that's a way we have to think about. Actually, if you look at these East Asian models, um, and it certainly is the, you know, the, the, the alternative, you can see scarily that there are great advantages in it, that you can actually do this sort of stuff. Um, you can actually control a virus pandemic by forcibly quarantining people. Uh, and they've done it, and it's not just you know, China, it's South Korea, it's Taiwan, it's Vietnam. So they've all been able to do it. And it is partly through this tracking technology. Um, and they said the Great Firewall of China, again, is very interesting because we condemn it. But on the other hand, you think, well, they wouldn't actually have Baidu, WeChat and all these things if they hadn't kept out Google, Facebook, Twitter. They actually created a space in which they could develop their own software and hardware industry. And the problem in Europe is we didn't do that. We should have a great firewall of Europe, really. And then we'd have these technologies. But so actually economically, it was a very, very sensible thing to do. 
to get them out. And then you could create your own clones of them. I mean, they have the equivalent of Twitter and Facebook. But of course, they've also got a much more advanced uh, payment system. So I was watching this thing about a guy who lives in China. And he comes back to America, goes to his local shop, takes out his mobile phone to pay, and then suddenly realizes he can't do it in America. That's going home and get some cash. He says, I can't believe it. They still don't actually have mobile payments in America. Mm-hmm. It's like primitive. You know, they don't have high speed rail, they don't have mobile payments, they don't have 5G. You know, he's suddenly coming going backwards in time <laughs> from China and all places. So, probably just as well they don't have 5G if it causes the coronavirus, though. That's probably it. Uh... I'm sure that's not the IA disinformation. I'm absolutely convinced because America can't build a 5G network. Is it, I think it's I fucking love science. They had this wonderful thing where they said each, each generation of mobile phones is actually less dangerous because they use lower power. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I wouldn't know. But uh, it's just really interesting about why is there a paranoia about 5G and not 4G? Uh, and I'm sure it's because the Chinese and Europeans can build 5G networks, but America can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should probably think about ending this soon because we kept you guys long enough. Is there any final questions we want to get to before we uh, close up today? Well, I don't want to be end by thinking that China is the future. It's just <laughs> an interesting comparison. And I think we should be wary of feeling superior. I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, the American state had the capability of doing that tracking. It's tracking the people already. It could mm-hmm. have done that. It could have done, you know, trace and track and isolate. But it couldn't it, because partly because of neoliberalism. People have been told for 40 years they can do what the fuck they like as long as it's within the market and they don't have to care about other people. And we've got it here, like in America, where people who won't wear masks. You know, that's just extraordinary. 80, you know, they say everyone wears a mask, you get an 80% drop in infection rates. And people think it's their sort of civil right, their Jeffersonian democracy. Mm. Going <laughs> other people. And it's extraordinary. And the East Asians, I was told that in East Asia, uh, COVID-19 is now called the white man's virus because <laughs> we lack the social self-discipline to be able to control it. So there is not just the sort of technology, the panopticon side of it. It's also partly a, a, a societal thing that these, and I said, it's not just you know China. It's also Taiwan and South Korea. So it's, you know, South Korea is a noisy democracy. So it's not, it's something to do with very deep in the culture of those societies where people are willing to trust the state, basically. If the state says, put on a mask, they'll do it because they know it's for the collective good. Whereas in the West, we've been, and it's interesting, it's the, the what are the countries that are really fucking this pandemic up are, are Britain, America, and Brazil. Right wing governments. Crazy right wing populists, you know, Brexit, Trump. Yep. Where you you know who cares? We're exceptional. We the laws don't apply to. I mean, especially Brexit is all about don't don't obey laws. You know we can do whatever mm-hmm. we like. We're you know blah blah blah. And I, America's the same. And so the fact they can't get people to do really basic hygiene, <laughs> called hygiene measures, let alone the sophisticated high tech stuff that we've been talking about, is really, and that comes down. I think that is something to do with neoliberal. Because if you read Hayek, I don't you read the Constitution of Liberty. And he says that, you know, the only freedom is the voluntary contract of the marketplace. You know, that, that's the only form of... And the idea that freedom is actually the republic, to go back to my favourite thing of 
the American Civil War. You know, the Republic, you have to organize yourself as a Republic. Have hundreds of thousands of people get into uniform and go and fire guns at slave owners to liberate other people. <laughs> you know, that the idea of the Republic has been completely evacuated by neoliberalism. Actually, before we go, could you, because you talked in the California ideology about France and the, the French idea of um, liberty, and it, which is, I, I, I can see, and I think it's a much more positive sense of liberty and, and, and a sense of um, the Republic and what people owe to each other as, 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 as citizens. Do you think France has etched out a, a different path in, well, in Europe, terms of... Europe, you know, Europe you know, is an American colony to a large extent. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, we're, so that's, we're slowly liberating ourselves. Well, not England. England is, is determined to become... Well, it, was, it wants to be the 51st state of the USA, but Israel's already claimed that place. Uh, I think it's the 52nd. Uh, but certainly, you know, the, I mean, Europe, Europe, Europe was, is very much being shaped by neoliberalism in the 40 years. But yeah, obviously, in the French Revolution, it went further. You know, the American Revolution, they pulled it off. You know, the six, they, they got 1688 English Revolution. The Whigs, I mean, they were Whigs, weren't they, the leaders of the American Revolution. So they, the, the people with property held on to their property as part of the revolution, got control. Whereas in, in France, as revisionist historians always put it, they, it skidded out of control. And, you know, the, the mob took over, which is why they diss it with the terror, of course. Uh, and then you do get the idea that all males should have the vote, that the state should be responsible for education and things like this. In the 16, you know, 1793, the idea of socioeconomic rights, which horrify liberals even today. Mm. You know, here we are in 2020 and the Foreign Secretary, the Foreign Secretary of Britain at the moment, Dominic Raab, attacks what he calls European rights by which he means <laughs> as opposed to English rights, which are liberal rights, basically civil rights. He doesn't really even like political rights, but he means property rights. So that's mm -hmm. the English, you know, the 1688 English Bill of Rights, which is, and obviously, and also the 1791 US Bill of Rights, it's very much in the same mould as that. That's uh, what you get. We gave you the Second Amendment, remember? <laughs> That comes from the English Bill of Rights. Every Protestant should be able to own a gun. Uh, 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 so the and they do in the 1793 French Declaration of Rights and Manicism, they actually have socio-economic rights. And that's a really key, I think, key shift forward. And certainly in the 19th century, socialists, that's what you know, if you read Marx on the Jewish question, that's what he's pointing out. You know, you could have universal political right, but it doesn't make any sense unless you also if you're going to create political democracy, you have to create social democracy. No. The republic needs cooperatives. <laughs> well, on the, on that thought and the thought of the white man dying out for being too stupid, we should probably leave it there. Um, uh, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Alex, thank you so much for joining us all the way from America today. Yeah, well, I, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think we should stop being white. That's definitely. And uh, well, Richard, I'll, I'll yeah. leave, leave you to do that in your own time. But thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, let's all let's let's us all become Creoles. Have a good day, guys. Uh, from Toby, Vaughn, myself, and from our guests Alex and Richard, uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll be back with a new podcast in the near future. Thanks, and have a good day. Goodbye.